Good afternoon. So today we had a little bit of a change in the schedule. I wanted to um, include a talk today that I think is very timely. Heard lots of discussion going on in the hallway at the pizza line about whether people should go on their vacations and their honeymoons and whether we should be scared of coronavirus. So I thought it was prudent to have this talk today. So we are very lucky today to have Megan Deming and Sarah Williams here. They're going to be giving sort of a pro-con debate, if you can call it that, about whether coronavirus or influenza virus are more dangerous, more scary, what we should know about them, and how we should differentiate the two of them. So please uh, join me in welcoming them to speak to us today. Thank you very much. So I'm not sure if y'all have heard, but we have something of an outbreak going on. We actually hit 100,000 cases of this new coronavirus today, and we have our first three confirmed cases in Maryland today. So in the scale of your response to a pandemic, there's a broad range of reactions you could have. You could go, meh, it's a cold, it only kills like 0.1 to 2% of people, I'm not going to die, it's fine. Or you could be like Seattle and buy up all the toilet paper. I don't know why toilet paper, it's Seattle, but my sister swears you can't find any. So to avoid myself talking at myself, like Sneagle versus Gollum, Sarah's helping me and we're gonna talk about how does flu compare to coronavirus? What's the difference in how it transmits? What happens if you get it? And what's your risk really as a healthcare worker? All right, all right. So let's start out by talking a little bit about the uh, transmission of influenza. This is spread primarily through respiratory droplets. Mm -hmm as well as hand contact. Um, respiratory droplets are, we use the droplet precautions in the hospital, that's a standard surgical mask with eye protection. Um, and that standard mask is uh, designed uh, to protect against uh, particles that are greater than 10 micrometers. There has been some controversy about whether or not influenza can be spread by aerosolized particles. There was a study that was done, this is a randomized control trial that looked in the outpatient setting at 400 different uh, clinical sites or clusters, and they did N95 versus a standard surgical mask, and they showed no difference at all. But I think it's important to note uh, that the difference in the setting that we're practicing in in the ICU versus in the outpatient setting that this study was done in is we were doing intubations and bronchoscopies, which are widely considered to be aerosol-generating procedures, um, so something to keep in mind when you're bronching someone with the flu. Shedding is greatest in children or adults with se severe disease, and it makes sense that symptomatic patients are more likely to be shedding virus than asymptomatic patients. That being said, up to 25% of the cases can be asymptomatic, um, and those people do still spread the virus. Uh, it can live on fomites for a number of hours, but it is... Uh, um, able to be killed or inactivated by an alcohol-based uh, cleanser. And I wanted to introduce, introduce the concept of the R-naught. Um, R-naught is a, a figure or term that the epidemiologists use to define how infectious a disease is. Uh, and it refers to how many people are going to catch a disease from one infected person. Uh, the R-naught can be variable, but most the average published estimate for influenza is about 1.3. So this means that one infected person with influenza will likely contribute to 1.3 other people getting sick with influenza. Some factors that go into the transmission of influenza are pre-existing immunity. Um, and there are kind of two components to that. One is the vaccine. We do know that we have pretty poor vaccine coverage rates. In the United States, this is a map from 2017 from the CDC. 
the vaccine coverage uh, varied from 37%, which is terrible, to 60%, which is still pretty not that good. Um, the effectiveness of the vaccine also varies somewhat dramatically from year to year. Some studies have shown that during a good year, we can actually reach 50 to 70% vaccine effectiveness. But when the CDC took a look over the last uh, 14 years or so, they came up with an annual average of only 38% effectiveness. With all of that being said, there are studies that show that vaccination of children and adults reduces the disease burden in unvaccinated individuals by up to 61%. So we do know that there is some herd immunity um, by vaccinating at least a portion of our population. We do decrease the spread throughout the community. In addition to vaccine, there's just broad community exposure. Everyone here has been exposed to influenza um, probably plenty of times, and so that contributes to some pre-existing immunity the next time that you're exposed to the flu. And then there's the question of pandemic versus epidemic, and uh, what is it? Well, the answer is influenza can be both. We all remember antigenic shift and antigenic drift from medical school, I hope. Antigenic drift refers to uh, small point mutations that go uncorrected in the viral uh, RNA. This means that your H1N1 virus, hemagglutin 1, uh, neuraminidase 1, stays an H1N1 virus, but those H's and N's look a little bit different than they did before, um, and your immune system doesn't recognize them quite as well. They're immunologically uh, different. This causes the seasonal epidemics that we see, and this is the reason that we need uh, yearly updates to our flu vaccines and yearly uh, vaccine campaigns. Uh, that's an ongoing process and probably will never stop, and it's most common in the influenza A vaccine. I'm sorry, virus. Uh, antigenic shift, on the other hand, uh, results in a completely novel hemagglutinin or hemagglutin neuraminidase uh, combination. And so instead of having an H1N1, you end up with your H3N5 or, or whatever it may be. The population has not seen that virus before, and therefore uh, it's at much higher risk of global spread or pandemic. This happens frequently due to a recombination event in an animal um, that then allows a virus to jump to humans and spread broadly. So the question of whether or not a coronavirus can cause a pandemic seems a little silly today with 100,000 infections, but this has been an ongoing question for two decades. Because we've known of coronaviruses for 30 plus years as a cause of a common cold. 20 to 30% of your common colds actually are caused by coronaviruses. And they tend to be these four strains, NL63, HKU1, OC43, and 229E. They're on our standard respiratory viral panel. They just cause colds most of the time in people who are otherwise healthy. But all of these viruses jumped from animals at some point. Coronaviruses are incredibly promiscuous. They don't care what host they're in. They are in seals, they are in whales, they are in cows, they are in camels, and they are in a lot of bats. And the bats are everywhere. So what we've seen now in the past two decades is that these three viruses, SARS in 2003, MERS in 2012, and the new novel coronavirus of 2020 or 2019 has emerged and caused more severe disease. It's the NL63s, HKU1s, OC43s made this same jump. We don't know if they were associated with the pandemic when they made that jump because we weren't looking for it. But these three, SARS, MERS, and, and then Wuhan slash novel coronavirus slash COVID do cause severe disease. So let's step back to the first 
outbreak of a severe coronavirus, which was in 2003 with SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. It emerged in 2002 from the Guangdong province of China. It infected 8,000 people worldwide, causing almost 800 deaths, which is a 10% case fatality rate. It caused a severe atypical pneumonia, supported only, or treated only with supportive care. We never developed a vaccine or a therapeutic. But because it was a single spillover event from a bat to either a civet cat, which isn't a cat, or a raccoon dog, which isn't a dog, to humans, it was able to be controlled by public health measures alone. So over the course of that epidemic, you saw it spread worldwide, and then when you were sick and in the hospital is when you were most transmitting the virus. And it's really easy to keep someone in containment in their, if they're in a hospital bed. So because of that, because when they were the most sick was when they were the most transmissible, we were able to control that, that spread worldwide completely, and SARS is gone. We have no more SARS at all until SARS.2 came around. Importantly, one other thing we learned is that the severe coronavirus has caused a progressive age-dependent mortality. So if you are the under, under the age of 45, you were pretty much fine. The only 6% of those died, and no one under the age of 24 died. But if you were over the age of 65, half of those individuals died, which is a crazy high mortality rate. So SARS went away. Everyone forgot about it. The funding dried up. And then MERS came around. So in 2012, in Saudi Arabia, we started seeing a new severe coronavirus. This, so far, has only caused 2,500-ish infections and 800 deaths, but this is a higher case fatality rate of around 35%. It also causes a severe atypical pneumonia. It also causes a progressive age-dependent mortality. So on this graph on the left, we see the primary exposures in camels infecting mostly older individuals and causing most of the deaths there, and even in the secondary cases, which are hospital workers, we see uh, most of the deaths are concentrated in the older age groups. This outbreak is actually still ongoing because we have ongoing primary infections from camels. So if you continue to have spillover, you can't control this epidemic or this outbreak, and it is still ongoing today. But it doesn't transmit very well, so it hasn't left that area much. Now, what we're dealing with today is the COVID disease, or Coronavirus Infectious Disease 2019. Technically, the virus has now been named SARS-CoV-2, but that's just confusing because you can cause it, call it SARS 2.0 and you can cause the disease COVID. So for this presentation, we're going to call it COVID and the virus that causes COVID. It, so far, as of 9 a.m. this morning, has caused 100,330 infections, 3,408 deaths, which brings us to a case fatality rate of 3.4%, which is probably inaccurate. Some publications push it closer to 1.4%. It causes a severe atypical pneumonia, not unlike SARS and not unlike MERS. And it is spread worldwide. What happened is, is it came out in the Wuhan province or the Wuhan city in China, which is a major transportation hub. These are maps of the high-speed rails and the domestic flights in and out of Wuhan in 2016 and 2018, respectively. So they first noticed the severe atypical pneumonia on around the 31st of December. They shut down the city on the 23rd of January. And despite very aggressive containment measures, it spread rapidly because of this broad transportation network. Now, what determines how this coronavirus spreads? Sarah already mentioned the R-naught, which is very appreciated. It's worth noting that the R-naught will change over the course of an outbreak. So measles, for example, has a hugely high R-naught. If you put someone with measles in an unprotected population, it will spread like wildfire. But everyone's vaccinated, so we don't have measles spreading around, hopefully, most of the time. Influenza has a decent R-naught that varies a little bit whether or not you're living in 1918 or 2009. Notably, SARS actually has a higher R-naught than COVID right now. 
but there are other things that determine how a virus spreads than just how many people it can infect. It determines when you're transmitting. So I mentioned that when you had SARS, you were in the hospital and you were sick, and then you started transmitting aggressively. With, with the COVID disease, you are feeling okay, you got a little bit of a cold, you got a sore throat, transmitting, 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 two weeks later you're in the hospital. And this is why we're having such trouble controlling this outbreak. So what we've seen so far, I mentioned the timeline briefly, but let's go through it. On December 31st, we had this atypical pneumonia identified in Wuhan, China, right around here. We had the first case recognized as having been exported around January 13th. On the 20th, we had our first case in the U.S. in Washington State. On the 30th, the WHO declared this a public health emergency of international concern. And then less than a month later, updated the global risk to high risk. Now, they're not calling, okay, there it is, 27th. The change, it's worth noting that the weird changes in the heights here are China changed their definitions on the 13th of February to say that all atypical pneumonias are COVID until proven otherwise. And then they changed it back on the 20th. So you see, so you see this weird spike and then decline, but the WHO adheres to whatever the country says the definition is, so they just accepted it. And then as of less than a week ago now, we had our first US death, and now we're over 200 cases and 14 deaths, and it is everywhere. We've actually already managed to export a case from Las Vegas to Canada. So travel history really doesn't matter anymore, unfortunately. As I mentioned, we've got, I think I said 226 cases as of 9 a.m. this morning, and we've got our first three in Montgomery County here in Maryland. So it's here, and it will be spreading, and we just have to keep an eye out for it. But it is worth noting that, so far as we know, it was a single spillover event. It, all of the genetic, these are all based off of the genetic similarities between them. They all follow a pattern you would expect to see if there was one single spillover event and then it continues to spread, which is part of why the WHO is pushing so hard to not call it a pandemic, because if they call it a pandemic, they say everyone's just going to eventually give up, get this virus, give up, surrender, stop trying to contain it, and just start mitigating it. But they're not calling it a pandemic because they want everyone to contain it because that's part of the mitigation. It's how we reduce the burden on our healthcare systems. It's how we make sure we don't overrun ourselves with infections is by trying to contain this outbreak as long as possible and slow the spread. So it's still listed as a very high risk assessment and it's multiple epidemics throughout the world. So what happens if you get it? Yeah, so what, yeah. Happens, let's, what happens if you get infected? We'll start with flu. Um, so the influenza clinical infection has an incubation period of about two to three days between exposure and development of symptoms. Uh, but it's important to note that viral shedding can occur up to 24 hours before the development of any symptoms. Um, in brief, there are three stages of infection we can go into in a bit of detail. Um, but that would be viral infection and replication, immune response and inflammatory cascade, and then regeneration of injured tissue and development of long-term immunity. And we'll talk a bit about those in a few slides. Um, so what kind of symptoms are people getting with the flu? We've mostly seen this, um, but the most specific, uh, I'm sorry, sensitive findings are fever and cough at 80, or 93 and 83% respectively. Um, otherwise, everything is pretty much a, a coin toss or less. Some of the things that we expect, the shortness of breath, myalgias, um, GI symptoms. Typically, for the hospitals, hospitalized patients that we're going to see, it more frequently presents as exacerbation of an underlying chronic disease, something like uh, COPD or CHF, um, or can present as a bacterial pneumonia. Those are the patients that we're seeing coming into the hospital, not being treated in the outpatient setting. 
immunocompromised patients are a little bit more of a grab bag. They show up and they just look non-specifically sick. Um, no significant or no specific findings are uh, determined. So in terms of clinical features, again, everything is pretty nonspecific. There's no pathognomonic lab that you see other than, of course, a, a diagnostic test. Uh, you may see some leukopenia or lymphopenia. Imaging is pretty nonspecific. Most commonly, you can see bilateral GGOs, um, sometimes a lobar or a cavitary pneumonia, but it can be anything. So don't, I wouldn't rule out a viral pneumonia based on um, any imaging findings. So how do we diagnose influenza? There are a couple of different uh, testing modalities available. There's rapid influenza diagnostic tests. These are most common in the outpatient setting, and they are terrible. Um, outpatient clinics like them because they're very fast. You get an answer in a couple of minutes, but they only have a sensitivity of about 50%. So if someone shows up with a uh, influenza-like illness and they have a negative swab, that does not mean that they do not have influenza. RT-PCR uh, is most commonly what's used in the hospitals. This has a much higher uh, specificity and sensitivity. Um, in fact, it might have a slightly uh, falsely high sensitivity because it's picking up not only uh, infectious viral uh, uh, virus, um, but also non-culturable viral material. So it might mean that a virus had infected and is no longer there. But that's okay, because that's probably also good information to have. Um, some increased or sensitivity may all be also be found by sampling lower in the respiratory tract. And so a negative upper respiratory tract swab does not necessarily mean that there was no flu, especially if you're a little bit later on in the infection. Viral cultures are also available. Um, these are not really used clinically. They take too long to provide any meaningful data or, or actionable data. Uh, they are used for research and um, epidemiology purposes, though. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how influenza causes severe disease. So at the beginning of an infection, the influenza virus binds to the epithelial cells of the upper respiratory tract and replicates within those cells. Uh, successive cycles of replication damage the respiratory tract epithelium and lead to what we see as the local uh, infectious symptoms. Uh, as this infection propagates, it moves lower into the respiratory tract and begins to uh, cause the release of cytokines. And then uh, the constant cycles of replication are causing damage and destruction uh, to the epithelial cells themselves. In conjunction with this loss of the physiologic barrier um, with the dysregulation of the immune system and the cytokine storm, this can lead to the complications of influenza that we see, such as secondary uh, bacterial infections or ARDS. So who's at risk for more severe outcomes? The adult population greater than age 65 or children less than five, pregnant women, anyone who's morbidly obese, that's a BMI greater than 40, Pre-existing pulmonary and cardiovascular uh, conditions are strong uh, risk factors and in fact are synergistic. So someone who has both cardiovascular and pulmonary conditions is more at risk than someone who has one or the other, as are renal, hepatic, and neurologic conditions. Immunosuppression of any kind, whether that's HIV or chemotherapy. Um, American Indian and Alaskan heritage has a, uh, been shown to have a higher risk factor as well as nursing home residency.
Um, there are myriad presentations uh, of influenza and its complications, but some that we should know about as critical care providers include respiratory failure or ARDS, um, cardiac complications, and this is not just a viral myocarditis that we've seen, but influenza disease itself increases the risk of ischemic heart disease uh, or ischemic cardiac events, especially within the first week following infection. Uh, cytokine storm and sepsis and all of the downstream organ failure that we see uh, in relation to that. Secondary bacterial infections and neurologic sequelae such as encephalopathy and encephalitis. So a little bit about the uh, co-infections that we see with influenza. Uh, bacterial co-infection is a relatively low rate in healthy patients, 0.5%, but up to 2.5% in high-risk individuals, and even higher if you're looking at uh, just the hospitalized population, up to 30% of, of hospitalized high-risk individuals. Um, commonly, it's in the first week or so following the initial influenza infection. And a 2016 meta-analysis took a look at what kind of organisms are actually causing these infections. Similar to what we see in the community for community-acquired pneumonia, strep pneumo is the most common. Staph aureus also has a bit of an increased risk from what you would expect uh, following influenza. Uh, but other than that, there's a wide heterogeneity of organisms that they see, including pseudomonas. Um, and then you'll notice that there's a big bar that says other. Uh, there's been some speculation about influenza being a primary risk factor for aspergillus infection. Um, there are a couple of small studies, and I think there's still some data to be found, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind. It's not just bacterial, but also fungal infections um, that can follow an influenza infection. And then it wouldn't be a critical care talk if we didn't talk a little bit about ARDS. Um, so, so how does uh, influenza cause ARDS? This most commonly happens with the influenza A virus. I think it's very exceedingly infrequent, but I want to say never, don't want to say never, uh, with influenza B. And you can see it in the schema here, uh, the upper right uh, quarter is a healthy alveolus. There's no fluid in the middle. There's an intact endothelial epithelial border. Following infection with the influenza A virus, you end up with cell injury, um, cytokine release, the cell injury spills proteinaceous fluid into the alveolus, which you can see both, both on the histopathology slide as well as the schema, uh, as well as selectin upregulation on the endothelium. This allows the extravasation of neutrophils into the uh, alveolus, alveolar space, um, which release uh, cytotoxic granules, prompting more cell death. Um, and then you can see in the final slide, the macrophages come in and uh, contribute uh, to uh, inflammation and fibrin deposition as well. And so uh, ARDS is common, especially with influenza A infection. Um, so who is dying from um, influenza? Who's getting critically ill? This was a graph looking at the Global Burden of Disease study done in 2017, which is a worldwide look at um, all diseases, lots of diseases, and an analysis just based on the 2017, I'm sorry, the influenza data in that time. Um, you can see here, the, is this mine? Okay, so this green graph at the bottom 
uh, is episodes of influenza, and it starts from young age to older age over on this side. And the episodes are obviously significantly more common in the younger ages. Um, hospitalizations are also more common in the younger ages, but there's a dramatic increase in the mortality rate in the older ages. Um, this means that the case, the reported case fatality rate of influenza, which is 0.2%, is a little bit uh, or skewed in that most of the patients who get influenza are not dying from it, as is represented by that number. However, if you're in the older age group or the higher risk age group here, most of the people who get it um, have a much higher fatality rate. We don't have those numbers, but it's obviously, uh, these are the patients who are ending up in our ICUs. The CDC also took a look at uh, the percentage of all deaths uh, that were caused by pneumonia and influenza. And so you can see over the last couple of years, during the influenza season, up to 8% of all deaths were caused by influenza and pneumonia. And in 2017, 2018, which was a particularly bad year, over 10% of the deaths during influenza season were caused by influenza. Uh, how do we treat influenza? There are a number of antiviral therapies available. The most common is oseltamivir or Tamiflu, which you have all heard of. Uh, it's a five-day, um, twice-a-day dosing uh, PO medication, and that's for uncomplicated disease. For people who are in the ICU, you can extend that course with the guidance of your uh, infectious disease consult. Um, there are two other neuramidase inhibitors that work in a similar fashion to uh, oseltamivir. One is called zanamivir, um, and that's an inhaled formulation, and it's not on formula here at the University of Maryland. And there's also paramivir, which is an IV uh, formulation, which is also not on formula here at the University of Maryland. Um, there's a newer medication called baloxivir, which you've probably seen commercials for on TV. It's Zofluza. Um, and that's actually got a different mechanism of, of action. It's the first in its class. It's a cap-dependent endonuclease inhibitor, um, and it interferes with the RNA synthesis within the virus. Um, there are not data yet to support its use in the critically ill population, uh, but it's being looked at both as a monotherapy or as a dual therapy with oseltamivir, given their separate mechanisms of action. Um, so stay tuned. We might have a little bit more coming out uh, on that in the coming years. Um, and I do know that it's start starting to be used as a dual therapy agent with some more severe flu uh, currently. All right, so since short answer is we don't have any of those yet for COVID, what's the dice roll if you do get infected with it? And the lucky thing is, is that if you as one individual person get infected, you're probably gonna be okay. 80% of these cases are mild or moderate, meaning you probably don't even know you have it, or you've got a little bit of a sore throat, you feel okay, you could probably go to work because hey, your job is important and we wanna make money and we wanna show up. Yeah, not so good for transmission, but another 15%, however, will get a severe infection, meaning that they have to be hospitalized. When they defined this, this severe infection, when they were in China, they defined this, defined this as people with dyspnea, people who had a respiratory rate greater than 30, O2 sats less than 93, reduced oxygenation, lung infiltrates on the lung field within 24 to 48 hours of admission. And then that final five or 6% of people are critically ill. They are in our ICUs. They have respiratory failure, septic shock, and or multi-organ failure and dysfunction. Right now, our crude case fatality rate is 3.4%. A published rate had it lower at 1.4% based off of surveys in China. And the question that I keep hearing is, is that really real? So 
assume we're underreporting a little bit because we know that a lot of these cases are mild or moderate. We're not catching them all. We certainly know we're not catching them all in the U.S. because we only really started testing about a week ago. So if we're underreporting about 5 to 10% worldwide, that drops our case fatality rate to around 0.2%, which is the same as flu approximately. It, but it's also worth noting that it can go the other way. So if you re recognize that these infections, you're you feel okay for about a week or two, and then you get critically ill. If we're measuring the case fatality right, rate right now, and then there, and there's an explosion of cases, we might increase our case fatality rate when they all get really sick in two weeks. So it can go both ways. One nice little petri dish for us, not nice if you were on the cruise ship, was the Diamond Princess. This was like a 3,000 person ship. Someone got infected and then they decided, no, 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 you're not landing, you're just gonna stay there. You'll be fine, wash your hands. It was a cruise ship. Everyone still mingled and went to cocktail parties and we ended up with 705 cases. Don't go on cruise ships. But so far only six of them have died. That's a 0.1% fatality rate, that's nothing. But again, they screened every single person on that ship. That increased your, or that increased your denominator largely. We're not screening 100% of people. Additionally, when they screened, about 50% of, 50 of them were asymptomatic. So if you'd only screened based off of symptoms, you would have missed a lot of those cases. You would have shrunk your denominator. Of note, about 20% of those went on to become symptomatic later. And then we've got six deaths so far, but 34 of them are seriously ill. And if they all die, our case fatality rate jumps back up again to 2% again. So it, case fatality rate is fluctuating. We'll know at the end of this epidemic what it was. Right now it's somewhere between 0.2% and 3.4%. Just another note about it matters how many people you test. Right now, we didn't really start testing aggressively until last week when we had our first death in the United States. So far, we've identified only 234 cases. With 14 deaths, that's a 6% case fatality rate, which is sky high. Not real, but it's worth noting that the numbers matter, and you can't just believe 2% or 3% just because they say it, or 0.1% because someone else said it. It's all still in flux. So I mentioned this has a lot of similarities to SARS. They both cause the severe atypical pneumonia, and interestingly, they both cause this progressive age-dependent mortality. This is based off of a summary of 72,000 cases in China. And you see, it's not nearly as severe as MERS or SARS was, but it does have that same upswing at the end if you're over the age of 50. Your kids are fine, by the way. None of them have died. No one under the age of nine has died, and like, I don't think anyone under 20 has died either. But if you look at the numbers, if you're under the age of 50, your chance of death is less than 0.5% based off of the currently probably still skewed case fatality rate. So it's probably even less than that. But if you hit 50, you're above 1% and it increases with each successive decade until if you're in the 70 to 80% 80 80 rate, 70 to 80 age range, your case fatality rate is 8% and above 80, it's 14 or 15%, which is very high. Now, we don't have pre-existing immunity, unlike flu. Most of us walking around, by the time we hit 80, have seen a thousand flu viruses. We've got decent immunity to it, but we don't have that. We don't know that prior common cold coronaviruses have any cross-reactivity to this, and we're pretty sure that they don't. Um, additionally, if you're like, ah, that's just the old people, sorry to the people in the audience. Uh, we've got 7.7 .7 billion people on this planet, and if 0.8% or 8% of them are over the age of 65, that's 600 million people who are at a 15% risk of death from this virus, which no one has immunity to and is spreading worldwide with very little barriers right now. So it's worth being concerned, but maybe not alarmed. Don't buy up all the toilet paper. Now, and what that matters for here in the U.S. is 
we have, if we assume everyone's going to get infected with this, we're going to see about 38 million people needing medical care. If it's relatively mild, we could have a million hospitalizations. If it's more like the 1918 flu severity, we could end up with 10 million hospitalizations. Short answer, we don't have that many beds. If we have 200,000 needing ICU and it's mild, we still don't have that many beds. There are only 46,000 medical ICU beds in the United States as a whole. If we end up with 3 million needing ICU beds, we're going to be in trouble. There are ways we can mitigate that. And that's what all of this social distancing, go home when you're sick, wear a mask, adhere to PPE is about. Because if we can spread this out so we don't all get it at the same time because none of us are immune to it, we can actually manage this outbreak pretty well. But if we all get it once, we are going to overwhelm our healthcare system and that will be a problem. So let's say we get our first case here from our first COVID case. What does it look like? Similar to flu, you're going to get fever and a cough as your common presenting symptom. 90% of the people who come into the hospital are going to be febrile at some point, but they don't always come in febrile. They will become febrile later on, but only 45% of them were febrile when they hit the door. What they do almost all have, though, is CT or abnormalities on CTs. So usually they get these atypical pneumonias. It's often bilateral. It's usually ground glass. And then if you keep doing serial CTs, you're going to see over the course of about four to five days, it'll progress to consolidation. They tend to be more peripheral and they tend to be more posterior, but it's a viral pneumonia. It can look like what it wants to look like. So we've seen ground glass opacities. We've seen consolidations. We've seen crazy paving. We've seen very rare cases of nodular appearances and occasionally these pleural effusions. And here's another case of ground glass progressing to consolidation. The x-rays are not always abnormal. They're not nearly as sensitive. But when they do show findings, you'll see this bilateral uh, diffuse patchy opacities. Not specific, but it can help if you say, this person looks really sick, but their CT is completely normal. They probably don't have COVID. So how do we diagnose it? We don't have a rapid test. The RVP does not include COVID. It does include the four of the common coronaviruses, so if they've got that, you can say you don't have COVID, um, but we're working on it. We're going to get it in the hospital soon-ish, maybe. Um, meanwhile, we're working on kind of different schemes to help identify who might have it, because none of us really believe the travel history anymore. It's in Maryland. It's here. How do we identify it? We want to identify it before they've been in the hospital for 10 days and 200 hospital workers are exposed. So right now, the scheme we're looking at is, do you have fever and lower respiratory symptoms? As I mentioned, 90% of these people are going to have fevers at some point during their hospitalization. So it's not perfect if they're afebrile, but if they look like they've got a flu-like syndrome, start thinking about it. Then, send a respiratory viral panel. You think they've got flu? We're not doing rapid flu tests anymore, A, because it's a terrible test, but B, because we want to rule out other infections. And if they have a respiratory viral panel that's positive for something else, you can get, you're probably good, you don't have COVID. This is not a perfect promise, but so far with so few cases, we're going with it's good enough. Uh, because theoretically, you can have co-infections with other viruses. But for diagnostic purposes right now, if you've got a respiratory viral panel that's positive for something else, you don't have COVID. If you obviously aspirated last night and the nurse saw you and you've got this clear right lower or left lower, whatever, some basilar consolidation, it's not COVID. If you have another explanation, it's not COVID. But we have to do a lot of guesswork and a lot of clinical decision-making to decide who we need to test because we don't have a lot of tests and we don't have a great diagnostic test anyway. And then the next thing we want to look at is what does their lung imaging look like? I already mentioned they usually have lung findings. So if you have a crystal clear, beautiful CT scan, we can confidently say they probably don't have COVID. Our other studies are all just suggestive. 
When they walk in the door, they tend to have a normal or a low white count. It can rise later in disease. They tend to have low lymphocyte counts. That tends to decline if you get a more severe disease. You tend to have an elevated CRP if you're critically ill, and you tend to have a normal procalcitonin. Not that we do it in-house, but if we did, it might be helpful. And then in terms of diagnostic utility, even the tests we have are not perfect. So if you take that respiratory viral swab and stick it straight towards their eyeball and don't actually get a good nasopharyngeal specimen, you're going to have poor sensitivity of that test. So if you sample correctly from the upper respiratory tract, it's okay. You would actually get better diagnostic utility if we sampled lower respiratory tract specimens. So BAL fluid has a higher viral load than upper respiratory tract specimens do. So this was in Korea? Yes, it was in South Korea. And all of those orange dots are viral load in the lower respiratory tract specimens. All the blue dots are upper respiratory tract specimens. They look pretty close, but that's a log scale. That's about a log higher for every lower respiratory tract specimen compared to the upper respiratory tract specimen. I am not saying bronch these patients if you weren't going to do so otherwise, because that will generate aerosols and increase your risk. But if you were doing it anyway, please send it to the lab for testing. We would appreciate it. So how does it cause severe disease? It causes a flu-like syndrome, so what? We know SARS-CoV-2, or the COVID-19 virus, binds ACE2, which is the same angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 that SARS bound. What is it doing in the lungs? <laughs> it, we know it binds at 10 to 20-fold higher affinity than SARS does. Does that have an effect on pathogenesis or transmission? Probably. We don't know how yet, but we think it does. When this virus infects people, the severe cases have ARDS. You see this diffuse infiltrate, you see the, uh, the clinical findings, and you see on pathology, hyaline membrane formation, diffuse alveolar damage. Because it's binding ACE2, ACE2 is expressed on ciliated epithelial cells as well as the type 2 pneumocytes in the lungs. You lose your surfactant ability if you kill all of those. So you've got this direct vital, viral cytopathic effect as well as the killing and the inflammation that results from that. You have a cytokine storm. We saw in one paper where they looked at all 20 different cytokines they could imagine to measure, a lot of them go up in more severe illness. They have a cytokine storm type appearance. And then something that might be unique to SARS and COVID is that because it binds to ACE2, it actually weirdly causes a downregulation of ACE2 in the lung. So they've shown that if you take a spike protein from a SARS or a coronavirus, which is the corona of the coronavirus, if you take that individual protein and shove it down into lungs, it will bind to ACE2, and then all of the ACE2 will shed off of those cell surfaces. So you lose that functional component of ACE2. Why does that matter? ACE2 might have a mitigating act in, in the lungs to reduce lung inflammation. So I apologize if it doesn't show up very well, but basically when you have endothelial injury, you see upregulation of angiotensin II, which progresses to cause pro-inflammation, pro-apoptotic, pro-fibrotic, and pro-oxidative effects. ACE2 is a mitigating factor there. If you lose it because SARS is, or COVID is binding and causing downregulation of ACE2, then it might push you more towards the ARDS scale and, and severity of disease. They actually showed that if you put recombinant ACE2 back into the lungs of these mice, you could reduce injury and reduce lung inflammation. A human is not a mouse. I can't promise it would do anything if you were to put it in human lungs, but it's promising it might be some other uh, future therapeutic. So you get infected with COVID-19, you have the direct cytopathic effects in the ciliated epithelial cells and the type 2 pneumocytes. You've got the cytokine storm. You've got this downregulation of ACE2, all of which is pushing towards ARDS, respiratory failure, multi-organ failure, hopefully not death. 
but how do we prevent them from progressing to death? All of the supportive care is going to be our mainstay of care for these individuals, but there's obviously many pushes to try and find some sort of therapeutic that will work. So on a completely made up scale of harmless to harmful and a completely suspected, I made this up as well, but it's educated guess of what our therapeutic options are, here are some things that have been talked about. So convalescent sera, we have a whole bunch of people who have recovered from this disease. We've got almost 50,000, yeah, 50,000 individuals who've recovered so far. You could take their sera and give it to someone who's infected to try and prevent it from getting worse. They've got neutralizing antibodies that should help prevent progression of that disease. Does it work? With SARS, maybe, with an asterisk, because these were not terribly well-controlled studies. They saw absolute risk reduction if you gave someone convalescent sera from around 7%, which is okay, to 23%, which sounds great, but these were only two studies, and there's a lot of risk of bias because you knew what you were giving them, so maybe. And then in four non-comparative studies, they're like, we gave it to them. They did fine. You got, you've got a case fatality rate of anywhere from 0 to 12%. It might work. Probably doesn't do any harm. What about lupinavir or ritonavir? Because people keep talking about lupinavir, and I would like to shut that down. It is an HIV protease inhibitor. The coronavirus proteases are not the same as the HIV proteases. They don't cross-react. You're going to hit toxicity before you hit therapeutic efficacy with lupinavir. But people keep doing it, so you keep hearing about it. And the fact that you gave it to some guy in, in Washington State who was doing fine anyway, and he still did fine afterwards, doesn't mean the lupinavir did anything. Remdesivir actually might work. So if you give a mouse, again, mouse not a human, remdesivir, you can stop their weight. So this is treatment. Everything works better if you give it to them before you give them a disease. But this is treatment. You gave them a disease, and then you gave them remdesivir. You can stop the weight loss. You can stop the death. And none of that happens if you give them lopinavir, ritonavir, plus interferon. So it looks pretty decent if you're a mouse. Additionally, if you use uh, the vehicle only, you see severe disease and all those brown spots are MERS. This was for a MERS uh, mouse trial. If you give them remdesivir, lovely, beautiful lungs. If you give them lopinavir, ritonavir, they look like the completely untreated lungs. So it has antiviral effects. It drops the viral load. Should work. It's got a mechanism of action that we understand, which is that it targets the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase that is conserved across all coronaviruses. Hypothetically, if you got OC43 and had a cold, it would work. I wouldn't do it because it's IV formulation only, and it might have liver toxicity. Not sure how much, we don't know, but it actually has a mechanism of action that makes sense. So if you're going to pick something, let us know. We'll try and get an emergency use IND to let you use it. <laughs> Please don't use the pinnacle. Now, what doesn't work? Steroids don't actually work for treatment. Now, if you need them for critical care management, go for it. But if someone is mildly ill and you want to prevent them from getting worse, do not give them steroids. When they gave it to individuals with SARS, they actually made it worse. So you see higher plasma RNA levels, so likely higher viral loads, weeks after treatment. They could not clear the virus. And they had an increased mortality rate with an odds ratio of 26. So it's not subtle. Don't use it. What about a vaccine? Some people have said we made a vaccine in three days. No. We made a vaccine candidate in three days. It's really easy to make a vaccine candidate. I can make one. If you give me a virus, I'll UV inactivate it and formalin inactivate it, and then oops, bad things happen. So if this is an unvaccinated mouse, the lungs look bad. If you vaccinate them with a killed vaccine, the lungs look worse because the immune response is not just targeted to the neutralizing to a neutralizing response. We get off-target effects that we don't fully understand. It's some sort of vaccine-induced immuno immunopathology. We think it's T-cell mediated, 
because we can replicate this if we use just the nucleocapsid, which is from the inside of the virus, which is therefore from the inside of the cell and therefore should stimulate a cell-mediated immune response. We can replicate this immunopathology with just the nucleocapsid of the spike. So we have, we've learned from the SARS epidemic what not to do, which is don't just use a whole-killed vaccine, don't use nucleocapsid. The vaccine candidates you're seeing right now are based off of the spike glycoprotein, which is the corona of the coronavirus, that should develop neutralizing antibodies. It should work. But because we're putting them into healthy people and we don't want to do that, it's going to take about a year to 18 months till we get something promising into people. So we don't have great treatment. We don't have any vaccines yet. We're going to see it. We're going to care for it. But how do we make sure we don't get it? But we're going to sidestep back to flu. All right. So a little bit... Um on risk to us and the healthcare burden that, that these diseases are gonna cause. So from the healthcare perspective, what do we do? Um, supportive care and, and treat with antivirals, we know that. But in order to prevent this uh, influenza from going from patient to patient, it's important that we have strong adherence to appropriate contact precautions. All healthcare members should be vaccinated and hand washing is essential. None of these things are surprises. They're all things that you've heard a bunch of times before. Um, it's important to remember though that this is for your patients. No one thinks that uh, as a young, healthy person, you're going to be infected with the flu and come out with those severe outcomes that we talked about. Uh, but the patient who you uh, are seeing next might. And so it's important that you do all of these things especially strong adherence to the appropriate contact precautions, not just running in to turn up the high flow and then running out real quick, um, holding your breath. That doesn't work. Um, just a note from our UMMC infection control uh, guidelines, uh, droplet and contact precautions for anyone with suspected or confirmed flu should be in place for seven days after the illness onset or until 24 hours after the resolution of fever and respiratory symptoms, whichever comes later. Um, so you don't necessarily need a negative test per our protocol. Um, but the other th comment that they make is aerosol generating procedures. You should be using fit tested N95 with eye shields or a papper. So if you're going to be doing an aerosol generating procedure in the MICU, that's an intubation, that's a bronch in someone who might have uh, influenza suspected or confirmed, we really should be using airborne precaution, not contact precaution for those patients. And that's incredibly important when we don't know if it's how aggressively it's in the community yet. So if you bronx someone, you're like, ah, oh, could, could that have been COVID? That's not the time to think of it. Think of it before. If you think they've got flu, just go ahead and start using your precautions more. Wear airborne precautions more often. Because this preparedness affects how many of us are going to get it. So in Wuhan, when this broke out, no one knew it was happening. No one knew what was going on. There was some vague circulation. 30% of their cases are healthcare workers. They got it from their patients. Outside of that province, when it was spreading and we have a little bit more awareness and as the disease progresses, it's down to 12%. So a little bit of precaution and preparedness reduces our acquisition of this disease. In Hong Kong, who dealt with the SARS epidemic and was very prepared, no one has gotten it. They have had six weeks of an ongoing slow infection. They've had 1,200 suspected cases and 42 confirmed. Not one of them has contracted COVID. They did have 14 potential exposures. They sent them home. They monitored them. None of them got sick. What's different is, is they're very aware of it, they are actually using droplet precautions universally for every single patient in the hospital. And then they're using airborne for everyone with suspected. We are not 
recommending that, but that it shows you that these precautions do work. So how is this spread? Similar to flu, it is spread by aerosolization procedures, which is not airborne. It's not someone's walking next to you and breathing and they're breathing it on you. It's they cough and there's that explosion and lovely mist of droplets and airborne droplets, or we're doing an intubation or a bronchoscopy. It's droplets, so we're standing next to each other and someone's coughing, or it's fomites, which is the door handles, the surfaces, you shake hands and someone didn't wash their hands. This is how it's spread, all the ways you can think of. So you prevent it with the aerosolization transmission by using your PPE. If it's droplet, social distancing. Say, hi, nice to meet you, fist bump. That's fine. And then fomites, wash your hands. It's not, it, it sounds stupid because we say it over and over and over again, but this is how we actually prevent the spread of this disease. Which, as I mentioned, you as an individual are probably not going to get sick from it. But if we have... 38 million people in the United States needing health care and 200,000 of them needing ICU care, we are going to max out our health care systems and we're all going to be exhausted and then we're all going to go home and then no one's going to be here and it's going to be the med students taking care of everything. So social distancing, PPE, wash your hands. It actually works. And if we do that, we can actually flatten this epidemic curve. If you spread those 200,000 people out over a year, it's a lot easier than if they all come in this next month. So takeaways from today. It's not really a Smeagol versus Gollum, a flu versus coronavirus. It's both of them. Because if you can imagine the severity <laughs> of a flu pandemic on top of a COVID pandemic, we don't want them both at the same time. They will continue to occur. We've seen with three COVID pan or three coronavirus pan or outbreaks in the past two decades, and with flu pandemics occurring with regularity and little kids who lick pigs, they're going to keep happening. So early recognition, using the PPE even when you don't think there's an outbreak occurring is still probably a good idea. Be like Amy over here who's using her full PPE in the BSL-3 and not like Timmy who's like, whatevs, I got glasses, I'm good. Right now we're doing supportive care only. As soon as we get therapeutics, we'll let you know. But don't use steroids because that will kill people. All right. Any questions? Yes. Do we need one of the most attendees? What are your thoughts about the speculation that as we get warmer, the flu may slow down? So we, we know that one of the common coronaviruses, OC43, does have a seasonality to it. And things that can contribute to that, similar for this virus, are you have, and we have more sunlight, you have more UV irradiation, which inactivates the virus. Also, we have more social distancing when half, half of us are at the beach or outside. So there's social factors, and then there's environmental factors like UV irradiation that could actually contribute. So we may see a shift as we hit the warmer months, but it's worth noting that it's warm on the southern half of the world right now, and so what we'll probably see is it goes from hemisphere to hemisphere, because I don't anticipate that we'll be able to truly eliminate this virus. I think there's too much asymptomatic and mentally symptomatic transmission that we're going to see this slowly circulate. It's going to probably become a common coronavirus. This year is going to be bad, and then it's going to level out, and we will just see it move through the population, and it'll be our fifth common coronavirus. So, uh, you know, in Wuhan, which is the epicenter, uh, the number of cases dramatically dropped off. And uh, it, it, it does correlate with temperature. And then if you look at how the disease is spreading, it's spreading exactly east and west. 
where do you see like community spread? You see it in Tehran, Milan, um, in South Korea, I've been in Japan, and you see it now in uh, in Seattle, and all those have very similar temperature and humidity. So I always think as temperatures get warmer, we'll see it go more in New York, Chicago, uh, British Columbia. So I think in, in definitely Central Europe and kind of um, Falkland states and things like that. So I do think there's some evidence to suggest that maybe it's, there's some temperature here, but we're right in the smack in the middle of like, if it's going to set up community spread, we're the perfect temperature, I think, what I'm looking at right now. So I think we should be concerned that our environment right now is a good environment for community spread of the virus. Yes. Yeah, room disappear. I'm pretty sure Gilead's working on that. I do know that they have a, a randomized controlled clinical trial started in Nebraska, and my understanding is they're going to try and do more um, as it spreads. And so we're going to, if we can, we'll set it up here. I think. Yeah. 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 This is not a drug that would have been used for something else. This is not our Oseltamivir over the counter pill. It's. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's a national trial. No, you're right. It hasn't changed. It, it had the potential. Interestingly, Toronto was the one spot that SARS really hit. And it was one of the first places on the, in North America that this one hit as well. There's something about the transmission in terms of our, where the, this is where the planes go. But so SARS was the one that had a single spillover event, went spread locally, and then was contained. What happened with SARS was you got sick. You started and then you started spilling virus. So by the time you were in the hospital, before you were in the hospital, you weren't, that, you weren't spilling virus. So when you got into the hospital, we quarantined you, and then you didn't spread anything. With this one, you're asymptomatic and you're spreading. And that's the problem. So. Yes? So if I am a healthcare worker, I'm not feeling very well. I have a fever. What should I do? Can I work in telehealth? Uh, are they going to us? That's a good question. We don't have the swabs on hand. We don't. As soon as we get them in house, I imagine we could expand testing. Uh, we don't have it yet, and the state isn't testing anyone who's not hospitalized. So you are too well to be tested. At a minimum, if you are feeling unwell, wear a mask because that prevents the droplet transmission to other people. And far as I understand, if we have a, if you have a known or a suspected contact with someone who had this disease, you should be home at a minimum, and then you should be monitoring your temperature and seeing how you feel. And then 14 days later, you can come back to work. 
Did I miss it? I think that's it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That was wonderful. Um, it speaks to the concept of original impotence and progression through and whether or not we should expect that kind of pandemic in your program as well. Great idea. We don't know. So one of the things with original antigenic sin is that it implies that the first time you saw a virus, you got this great response to it and this whole rainbow of antibody responses to it. And the next time when the influenza virus shifted a little bit, the ones that recognized those first responses, they respond even better. So you end up enhancing your responses to that or your immunity to that first virus you saw. And that will always be your best immunity. So if there's a large drift or shift in the influenza viruses, you might not respond as well to it as if it was the same H1N1 that you saw when you were two years old. We have no idea if that happens with coronaviruses, in part because we don't think you're seeing this shift or this drifting of coronaviruses. No one studied it because no one was interested in it. But as far as we know, it's basically the same virus with minimal changes. We don't know what sort of selective pressure it's on because no one's really looked at the antibodies terribly well. We think the antibodies wane pretty quickly over the course of a year. So you can get the same virus over and over again. And we don't know if there's any sustained immunity or how that would work. It's just Give us the money and we'll check, check it, but we don't know. <laughs>